The information provided on the Finesse Your Money podcast is not intended to constitute legal, business, financial or other professional or product advice. It is provided as general information only and is not intended as a substitute for personal advice from a qualified and licensed professional who is familiar with the facts of your particular circumstances. Ever asked yourself where your money is going? It's a common problem for businesses and people personally. Is it dumb luck to be successful with money? Or is it the smartest and most successful businesses and people that plan and know their numbers? Is your money out of control? In this first season of Finesse Your Money, we're focusing on challenges for businesses right now and practical steps that you can take to overcome them. We've also got some awesome tips from our guests about what they are personally doing to keep their money in check. Finesse Your Money is hosted by me, Janine Wilson. I've been a financial advisor for 10 years and an accountant beforehand for, well, more years than I care to say. And I'm the founder of Finesse Financial Advisors. Welcome to Finesse Your Money. Today's guest is Peter Mansell. Peter is the Managing Director of FYG Planners, my dealer group. He's a certified financial planner. He founded Mansell Financial Group in 1980. Welcome, Peter. Oh, hi, Janine. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. Tell us more about yourself growing up, Peter. What initially sparked your interest in investing? Well, I grew up in a home which was a single-income, seven-children home. So, frankly, there was not a lot of money that was visible as I was growing up. Dad went out, earned an income. Mum was the archetypal mother that raised seven children that all turned out to be pretty decent human beings. And, um, yeah, money wasn't something that was spoken about much. It certainly wasn't something that I observed much about other than there was a scarcity of it, you know. As I, as I grew, you know, became a teenager, it was, it was obvious to me by that stage that, you know, some people had a lot more money than others. Um, I was lucky enough to then go off to university, so I was still poor at that point, and then uh, was lucky, you know, some 41 years ago to, uh, to move to Tasmania, and, and my interest in money really came about for, at the time when uh, I needed to start earning it and then accumulating it to become financially secure. Um, so that's a long time ago now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. So what's one mistake, Peter, that you see people making over and over and how can they fix it? I think there's two that really come to mind uh, very clearly. Number one is very few people manage their spending effectively. Pretty much everyone I've ever met over the years, and having been in advice for 40 years, I've met a lot of people, they have a lot of leakage in their budget, so to speak. Quite simply, uh, they have a lot of expenses that they don't really think a lot about that bleed their capacity to either manage their finances well on an ongoing basis or accumulate wealth for the time when they don't want to work. So that's the, that's the first one. And the second one is people making emotional decisions about money. You know, if people can stay calm and detached, they'll usually make good decisions, particularly if they're basing those decisions on sound academic research on evidence that's genuinely proven, people who invest, spend, borrow, purchase based on emotion are often parted with their money. Absolutely. I I was just speaking to someone earlier and made that comment myself, Peter, that I think it's more than nine out of 10 people that I meet. It's probably, you know, a rare exception where someone has a complete handle on what they're spending and has no leakage out of their household finances. So it's quite incredible. And 
Absolutely. Certainly, you know, we're sitting here today in the midst of lockdown for this pandemic for COVID and many people have been panicking about money. Many people don't have emergency buffers in place, so they're very, very worried from a household perspective about money right now. So great, great tips. So what would you say uh, to people who are fearful right now? I think there's two really important points. Number one is try to follow all of the recommendations that governments and our health experts have given us, you know, with regard to the health aspects of it. I certainly can't speak with any authority on that other than, you know, these people are working very hard to try and keep us all safe. So that's the first thing, look after your health, uh, because without that, frankly, you don't have much. And the second thing comes back to my, my prior answer, and that is don't let your emotions cloud your judgment. Don't let your emotions goad you into making decisions that you'll end up uh, regretting for a very long time. By way of example, whilst it wasn't health-related, the global financial crisis back in 2007-8-9 had much greater financial impacts on investors than what we've seen so far from COVID-19. Now, did it have as, as big an economic influence on governments? Possibly not. And, and what we're seeing with COVID-19 will be far-reaching. But again, people who react out of fear of what might happen or what could happen or what they think might happen generally will make very bad decisions about their investing. Uh, and if we use the global financial crisis as an example, the largest number of people in Australia that switched their diversified super fund portfolios to cash with Australian super before the recent events was March the 6th, 2009, the single worst day they could have done so. So in investors whose emotions beat them then would never recover from such a decision. And and I agree. I mean, I had a neighbour mention to me last week that she panicked and pulled all the money out of super was going to sit it in an offset against the home loan. Uh, you know, I think that many, you know, there's a big problem in Australia with people not getting financial advice and there are, you know, a range of reasons for them doing that. But certainly I think before you make such a, a mammoth decision that has far-reaching effects on your financial future, you really should be engaging with a financial mm. planner. Yeah. Well, to that lady, I'd say, you know, if she, if she managed to forecast that this was going to happen and did it before the COVID-19 virus unfolded across the planet, I'd say to her, congratulations, your clairvoyant skills are brilliant. But if she did it afterwards, what she's actually done is crystallised a loss that will be permanent. And whilst having that money against the offset account is going to save her interest charges on a loan, excellent outcome. But if she's not in the market, whenever it might turn around, she's going to pay for that in the long term very badly. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So what are three really common questions that people are asking you right now, Peter? We actually sent a piece out to write to all of our clients within our own retail business here only last week. And the three things were really, the most important things were, should I move to cash you know, and try to reinvest later? And we just reminded them about, A, they've already missed the first part of the downturn, um, so that they've worn that loss. Then they've got to know when to get back in. So they've got to make a second call that's a good call. That's not easy. Professionals don't even do it on, on a 50% success rate. How do the poor old amateurs do it? So that was the first one. The second one was, you know, how safe are the safe part of my portfolio? 
and we talk to them about the way in which we manage credit risk and term risk really carefully in portfolios we construct so that that part of the portfolio is genuinely here as a buffer in difficult times when the investor actually needs it and, and reminded them that none of our clients actually have exposure to things like hybrid securities, collateralised debt obligations or any sort of synthetic fixed income investments because history has shown they behave like fixed income investments while times are good and they behave like equity investments when times are bad and they end up losing as a result. Um, so that, that was the second really significant question was, well, all right, how safe is safe part of our portfolio? And the third one, ironically, and I was really heartened by this, was people were actually asking if we were okay. Here we were, you know, working from home, sort of spread across our region and, and not being able to sit face to face with clients, but doing all of our meetings by video conference and teleconference and the like. And people were genuinely keen to know that we were going to be okay because they rely on us so much. Uh, and they, they really rely on us for that guidance. They rely on us to be the steady, objective you know, voice when they're concerned. And uh, they were pleased to know that we were in a good position, you know, conservatively managed, and we were going to be here to support them. And I think that that's uh, one of the things that I've noticed, that people you know, were running here and running there, doing whatever their business was or whatever had to be done. But this this time sort of we've moved to this sort of lockdown situation and people have got more time. It's sort of a bit ironic really that, you know, in a time where we're supposed to be disconnected, we're becoming increasingly connected and that's just showing that human side of people mm. you know, really coming back out. It's a lovely story. So, Peter, if you could fast forward to the future, say, I don't know, three or six months from now, what would the world look like and what are your thoughts on how we'll come out of this current situation? I'll speak from a perspective of what I'd hope it would look like because, firstly, I don't know if COVID-19 will be something of the past in three to six months' time. I really don't have any clear view on that at all. But, but if we make the assumption that either a vaccine has been developed successfully or that a cure has been developed successfully, and at least the health aspect of it we know going forward won't become catastrophic, you know, on a global scale, then, of course, you start to look at, well, what's the economic outcome of it? Yeah. First thing I'd say is I would really congratulate all of the major global developed economies that have chosen to support their economies with major stimulus packages. In fact, I'd call them rescue packages, not stimulus packages. If you wind the clock back to 1929 to 1932, when we had the Great Depression, governments at that time didn't know how to deal with these sort of problems. And for example, in the United States, the Fed put interest rates up at a time when they needed to make money supply easier. And, and they exacerbated the unemployment problems, the failure of business and the like. Our governments and our central banks are much smarter than that at the moment. I think they're doing an awesome job. You know, I got an inquiry from a client last Friday concerned that the government was mortgaging our future. And I said to him, his name's Graham. I said, Graham, we have to mortgage the future to allow the present to continue without it actually falling into anarchy. Um, so, you know, the fact that the leading countries around the world, Australia included, um, have actually chosen to finance through borrowings the support for the community going forward. We won't be in anarchy in six months' time. We might still be in lockdown. It might still be the, the nuisance that that is, but we won't be in anarchy. And the other thing that I think that this general lockdown around the globe has done is 
and we're lucky we live in, in such a technological age, it's actually forced people to communicate more regularly with family and friends and other loved ones. I've just seen it all the time, talking to different people that you wouldn't normally, you know, take the effort. Another client rang me this morning to just say, hey, I'm just ringing to see how you're doing. You're carrying a lot of responsibility at the moment. And we talked about the fact that, you know, like me, he's contacting his, you know, children through Zoom and through Skype and FaceTime and the like and spending time with grandchildren in those video conferences. I think there'll be more of that. I think this is actually forcing people around the planet to say, well, hang on, what do I really value? Yeah. Now, who do I really want to spend my time with? And, and making the effort to do it, albeit remotely at yeah. the moment. Yeah, and you know that's always one of the things I say. I'm more about more than money. You know, it's mm. about that that connection and and how it enriches your life. <laughs> I think we will come out of this a much more connected series of communities right across the planet. We might not travel quite so much, but <laughs> we'll uh, we'll certainly be more connected. <laughs> that's true. So, have you made any changes to the way you handle your personal finances? And what are your top tips for people who are feeling the financial pinch right now? Well, the first part of this question I, I always want to laugh at. Of course, my wife and I can't shop as much as we normally would, and Leonie uh, is not really an online shopper. I've been in a pretty fortunate position. As it turns out, our spending's gone down quite dramatically. Of course, we can't go out to eat out as we routinely would have been doing before COVID-19 came along. We're still drinking as much wine as ever, uh, but I'm lucky I've got a very substantial cellar to rely upon. This would have to go on for a long time before I'll run out of wine. For people that are feeling the pinch, and there's a lot of those, you know, there's our youngest daughter, for instance, in, in her role has been stood down. She's in hospitality. So her and her husband are effectively sharing his job at the moment in a very remote part of Australia. But again, they can't spend anything at the moment. So from, from their point of view, it's just a case of batting down the hatches and your spending's going to go down. Make sure you, you meet your fundamental commitments like your mortgage repayments, you know, your electricity bill, your water bill, that sort of thing. Make sure you eat, sleep, rest, talk to the people that, you know, that you're living with, you know, so that you've at least got some communication. Try and find things that that you maybe didn't find time to uh, to do before. Yeah, and I think that you're right. I mean, certainly I wouldn't be encouraging uh, people to have a look at what they're spending their money on. Obviously, yes, the groceries and the shopping will, will be diminishing somewhat, although some people are switching to online. But uh, certainly have a look at what your costs are. And, I mean, it's a great time when you've got time, you've got this time to, you know, most people aren't commuting anymore. I mean, if I was commuting to the city, that's three hours a day I'm saving. So, you know, people have got some more time to have a look at the fundamentals, you know, compare their electricity or utility costs and compare their insurance costs and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, really dig into what you're spending your money on and get a really good grasp on it. It's a perfect... And, and maybe look at, at cost areas that are no longer relevant. By way of example, we've been using um, Amazon Prime and Netflix for some time. We'd also been a Foxtel subscriber for a long time, but we're no longer using components of the Foxtel subscription, so we've deleted them and saved ourselves. It's peanuts. It's $40 a month, but it's still $40 a month that we now don't have to find to pay for something that we were just not using. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. there's a lot of that redundancy in people's budgets. I mean, yeah. you know, just... 
things money just keeps going out month in month out and you without really realizing you know what what it's what value it's adding to you and your life an, so. an example yesterday of a client who had a phone plan a very modest phone plan with a service provider here in australia and they just brought out a new offer and it was 45 percent cheaper yes so we're going to switch kevin's phone plan to the 45 percent cheaper phone plan and it won't impact his use at all no no and so there's plenty of opportunities to spend your time wisely and really you know look at your finances and probably minimize that strain that it's causing you right now have you made changes to the way you do business since the pandemic started? I mean, obviously, you've had to take the business online, but have there been any other sorts of changes? Oh, look, the principal things are, of course, all the staff are working from home. Uh, that's number one. Number two, all of our meetings are happening, you know, by video conference and teleconference, as I mentioned earlier. Right at the moment, we've made a decision. We will not take any new clients at the moment. If we don't already have the work in train, we're not going to try and engage with new clients at this time because... It's not easy to start a relationship remotely and we're, we're a very high-touch business. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And our principal responsibility has to be to the people we already care about and, and that we already care for. Um, so we're making ourselves solely available to them and, and that will be our focus until such time as we get back to working in a, in a realm that's something like normal. Mm. So obviously this crisis is going to end at some point. What do you think are the longer term ramifications for investors? I don't know exactly how long this will take, but eventually we will revert to a new norm, mm. whatever that might look like. And I don't begin to claim enough knowledge to paint an accurate picture of the future in, say, 12 months or two years or three years' time. But we'll eventually get to a new normal. And, and investing will become, again, what it has always been, a story of risk and reward. And so there will be safe investments like deposits with well-capitalised banks. There will be real estate investments that will have the inherent risks that real estate does. And there will be equity investments where investors will be willing to back the leadership of businesses that they expect to be successful. At some point, we will revert back to those norms. And when we do, uh, the investment outcomes will have a similar pattern to what they've always had, and that is that being in business is riskier than owning real estate. It will generate the highest returns, but with greater volatility. Real estate will deliver higher rates of return than if you just lend your money to a bank. At some point, we will revert back to that. Right at the moment, yep, we're getting shaken up, and you can't necessarily see that pattern as being present today, but it will happen again. It happened after the Great Depression, it happened after World War II, it happened after World War I. Uh, every big event, we end up reverting back to a normal again. I'm convinced that risk and return will again be related and we'll be one day soon looking at fixed income, property and real estate and, and share investing just as we have in the past. And it's just a matter of time. I mean, some investments took 10 years to really right themselves after the global financial crisis. But, you know, in the fullness of time, you know, you can turn the Titanic around, I guess. Well, it's also important to remember that in the lead up to events like the global financial crisis, and I'll, I'll pick on the 87 stock market crash as well, we had four exceptional years in the lead up to both of those events. So if somebody had been an investor 
from, say, 1983 to 1987, and then continued to invest after that dramatic fall, or if they'd been an investor from 2003 after the second Gulf War concluded through to 2007, they had colossal gains, gains that were way above normal. Mm -hmm. At some point, they have to revert back to the mean. And so we had the collapses of both 87 and also you know, the GFC. But then when you look five years later and you put a line of best fit through it, it was actually pretty normal. It was too good on the one hand and it was excessively bad on the other hand. But you put it together and it actually wasn't an abnormal outcome. Yeah, good point. So, Peter, you're the principal at Mansell Financial Group and you help people make better investment decisions. Can you tell us more about your investment philosophy? I mean, you know, I use this same investment philosophy, so I'm really keen for you to share that with our listeners. Well, the first thing is that client needs should always drive the construction of an investment portfolio. Now, what I mean by that is client needs in particular, what do people need to spend regularly? from their investments, if anything. Secondly, what they'll need to spend in big chunks at some future time, whether they be one-off amounts or regular out, uh, amounts later on. So that's the number one thing. The client need is the critical first step in the designing of a portfolio. And that's where a good advisor helps someone to really understand what those needs are going to be and why their portfolios need to look the way they do. So client needs drive how the portfolio should be constructed. So then the second part of that is the construction of the portfolio is effectively firstly an asset allocation decision, a decision between how much is to be invested in safe investments, which are traditionally for shorter term and, and near term spending and growth assets that are meant to help protect someone with their longer term spending. So that division is critically important, but it's driven from the client needs. Then when we look at those two components, we then look at the timeframes. You know, do the safe investments need to be spent in the next one, two, three, four, five, ten years and structure the portfolio accordingly? Do the growth investments really have five years to run or do they maybe have seven years to run? Do they have ten years to run? Is it for the rest of someone's life? Um, so how you then build those portfolios is again determined by that time frame. So in the safe part of someone's portfolio, we focus very heavily on credit risk and term risk. Credit risk, how sound is the person borrowing your money? And term risk, how long are you actually lending it to them for? How many years have they got to potentially go broke? And that really determines how safe that safe part of your portfolio is. On the other side, on the growth part of the portfolio, there's real estate, and share investments. So, you know, does the person have enough wealth to go and buy property and still have a diverse portfolio or not? If they do not, then get them access to a property index. When it comes to equity investing, it's a case of should they be investing within Australia as well as the rest of the planet? Our view is that certainly Australians should look outside Australia as well as within Australia and they should be very broadly diversified and that they should bias their portfolios towards factors such as the size of the company, the relative health of the company and the profitability of the company in the long term to get better than average rates of return by pursuing those factors in a very disciplined, consistent and reliable way. Those very basic things that I've just described, look, 
they're not sexy they don't make people rich overnight um, they're almost boring but what they have done is over 40 years that i've been in the business delivered clients a bit better than average rates of return over any decade long period no matter when you start it no matter when it finishes they've got better than average results and and that's the message we give to clients if if you believe in the same factors that we believe in you embrace that approach and adopt it consistently you'll get a better than average result over any decade long period and if that's not a good enough outcome for you well we're not going to be able to help you because it's the best process we know and we adopt it and utilize it uniformly for all clients we apply it consistently and it works Mm, yeah, and you know, there's plenty of proof in the in the pudding when you're you know consistently getting you know slightly above, and that you know it's the compounding effect of that you know slight outperformance that you know can make a difference over a long period of time. I mean, I'm assuming that you've got clients that have been with you 40 years, Peter. Yeah, in fact, we do. I, I still have my very first client. She's long retired now. We, we've got some great stories. In fact, we we did some analysis for a particular client, husband and wife, they retired in uh, 2002 and had all of their assets uh, for investment purposes inside a self-managed super fund portfolio, which we've been managing ever since then. They have been extremely disciplined, kept with the same investment approach with just annual rebalancing on their portfolios for the 17 years through to October of 2019. And, And that portfolio delivered over that time an 8.9% per annum rate of return, net of all costs over that period. And they've drawn out over the 18 years more money than they originally invested, and they've still got more money than they originally invested. And if they'd invested in a risk-free portfolio, that is they'd bought bank term deposits, and if they had got the very best term deposit available to them every July 1st for that whole 17 years, the average return over that time would have actually been 5.5% per annum. So 3.4% per annum difference in their return over 17 years actually doesn't sound that much. But for them, it was $1,125,000 difference. And that's an outstanding result, isn't it? Yeah. And I actually congratulated them. I said, look, I'm not doing this analysis and showing you this to pat myself on the back. This is just to show you how by being disciplined, and sticking to a proven approach, you got a great result. And I think we spoke about that earlier. I mean, my concern with people, you know, pulling out at the wrong time, you're crystallising those losses and just locking that in really has a strong effect on your future. So staying the distance is really important. And it's important to know that, you know, moving money around and switching investments back and forth, chasing last year's winner just doesn't work. It, it is about that slow burn of, you know, staying the distance, a bit like a marathon. Absolutely. It is a marathon. If you think about anybody that works with a financial planner might have a view as to whether they're a short-term, medium-term, long-term investor. But even an 80-year-old has an average life expectancy of seven years. Mm. That's not a short period of time. A 60-year-old has an average life expectancy of 25 years. That's a very long time. A 50-year-old, best part of 40 years. Um, So to me, pretty much every investor is a long-term investor. So why should they worry about what happens in the short term? Yes, be aware. You might be concerned, 
but don't worry about what happens in the short term. Focus on your long-term lifetime goals, lifetime preferences. And so long as you can do those things and you've got a good portfolio approach, an investment philosophy that works, just stick with it and let it do its job. Yeah. It should take the worry out of those decisions, shouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Tell me, Peter, are there any key indicators investors should be looking for right now to help them decide on their next move, you know, to buy, hold or sell? And I realise this is off the back of our last conversation, but for people who have pulled their money out or made some sort of misstep. Three comments I'll make in response. Number one, of all the people that are listening to this podcast for you, firstly, I'd hope that the vast, vast, vast majority have just stuck with their approach. So to those people, I just say, just let it do its job. To the people that have got spare cash, that now see this as an opportunistic time, fine. Maybe you do tiptoe back into the market. And we've got about a dozen and a half clients that have already reached out to us and said, hey, we've got more money over here that we can afford to put into the market now at lower prices. And, and we counsel them on the fact that, well, yes, they're lower prices, but they can go lower yet. Um, I'm reminded of Warren Buffett when someone asked him during the GFC, a particular stock had dropped from over $100 to $26. And the journalist said to Buffett, how much lower can it go? And Buffett said another $26. Mm. Mm. And he was right. You know, some companies will fail. So for those, you know, you might tiptoe back into the market at lower prices. You might decide to, to plunge in. If you then stay for the long haul, you'll be fine. But in the short term, there could be more pain yeah. before there's any gain. For those that have actually bailed out um, to cash and want to try and time back in, I just wish them the best of luck because nobody's going to ring a bell to tell them today's the day. No, that's right. Um, you know, it's if you've made that move now, at some point, you've got to have the conviction to do it, but invariably after 40 years of observing the behaviours of others, very few people get this right. Mm. To bail out at the wrong time, you've already incurred the pain and crystallised it. To then have the courage to do it, you know, to go back in, it's just a matter of luck. Our listeners are interested in how your investment team identify and select investments. Can you tell us more about what that process is and what clients can expect? Yeah, look, we, we use really, really strict academic screens in the fixed interest arena it's all about credit risk and term risk credit risk being how worthy are the borrowers to actually lend your money to you know are they triple a rated countries like australia or, or our, our big four banks or are they junk bonds that are being issued by some some company in panama you know at the end of the day you need to know what they really are and then there's the issue of term risk. If you lend your money to someone for a long period of time, whether it be a government, a corporate, an individual borrower, the longer you lend for, the more time you give them to get into difficulty. And we've seen a lot of loans arrangements over the past get into difficulty. <clears throat> Going back into the 1990s, the Russians defaulted on their debt. A sovereign country said, no, we're not paying. Yeah. After 2000, Argentina did the exact same thing. Now, it decimates their home economy uh, because nobody will ever invest there anymore. But at the end of the day, the people that have lent, that lent to the Russians or the Argentinians, they didn't get their money back. So the longer you lend for, 
the more time it allows for something like that to happen. The same can be said uh, at a corporate level. So if you lend for long periods of time, you take a much greater risk. And, and how this unfolds is when you lend money for long periods of time, you normally do so through arrangements called bonds. Now, uh, for, the, for the listers, think of it as a term deposit that goes for a very long period of time, and that, that loan, you can actually buy and sell along the way. And, and that loan goes up in value when interest rates fall uh, because investors can no longer get the same rate of return with a new investment. And when interest rates rise, bond investments fall in value because, again, investors can now get a higher rate of return if they set up a new bond. Now, I've been around a long time and I saw 1994 when interest rates rose 4% in one year. And we saw people that owned 10-year bonds that lost 30% of their value. Now, if that's the safe part of your portfolio, that isn't very safe from my perspective. No. So really, really important to understand in the safe part of a portfolio, those screens of credit risk and term risk. In the equity markets, it's really about finding managed investments, whether they be ETFs or managed funds, that utilise factors that have been proven by the world's best academics in financial scientists, people like Bill Sharp, Harry Markowitz, Gene Farmer Sr. Um, these guys undertook you know, groundbreaking economic research that won the Nobel Prizes. And so we use their methodologies to screen any investments that we might consider for our portfolios. And frankly, we only use investments that have gone through those screens successfully and, and use those factors that we know we can rely on. Mm. Good idea. So what have you done in your industry that's, um, or, or even your business that you're most proud of? Oh, okay, easily, uh, easy to respond on three, three levels. Number one, we know that we've had a positive influence on an awful lot of families over a very long period of time. Right now, the Mansell business supports about 500 families, both locally in our region, but more broadly around Australia and how strongly we relied upon purely from the fact that we don't lose clients. So they absolutely follow what we believe in, number one, and rely on the advice that they get from us. So the support of others is definitely uh, something I'm immensely proud of. To, to have been able to create jobs here for 26 people at the moment and, and over 100 people over my career is also something that I'm really proud of to be able to you know, create a meaningful business that genuinely helps clients that also employs other local people. I think that's, you know, immensely satisfying. And then to have over time leveraged what we've been able to do here into the FYG business and to find some great partners within that business to support another 80 advisors around the country in 44 locations, you know, knowing that we have a positive influence on about 10,000 families Australia-wide. I wish it were 50,000 families, but it's about 10,000 today. Uh, and we make a positive difference in their lives. So, you know, just firstly, better outcomes for clients. Secondly, creation of jobs. And thirdly, helping other great advisors like yourself deliver great results for clients. Uh, immensely satisfying. And uh, I wish it was 50,000 too. I still think we've got quite a, a problem in Australia with people not getting quality advice and I think that um, sometimes people perceive it's cost prohibitive but when you weigh it up against the opportunity cost then you know it, it makes it look cheap doesn't it <laughs> yeah oh absolutely 
So what are three things our listeners can do right now today to set themselves up for the future? The most important thing is get a good advisor that you can relate to, that you can develop trust in, and that'll take some time, and build a plan that really suits what you want the rest of your life to look like. The planning is absolutely critical. Nobody plans to fail, but an awful lot of people fail to plan. Um, number one. Number two is if you're going to accumulate wealth, do it using methods that really have been proven to work. Don't try to find the next big thing. You might be the lucky one, but most people are not. And then the third thing is stay disciplined to your plan and disciplined to the processes that you set up. You will get wealthy slowly if you do that. And by wealthy, I don't just mean financially. You'll have a more relaxed life because you'll know where you're headed. You won't be spending all your time worrying about money because that's your advisor's job. And you will get to spend your time doing the things you love with the people you care about most. It's not a race. I think sometimes people get caught up in, you know, accumulating quickly, but it's not a race. (laughs) It's It's a journey. We're all on some sort of journey. And I genuinely believe that most people, if they can spend the most of their time doing what they enjoy with the people they care about most, they're usually pretty contented folks. So if they get to do that because they've got a good plan that's been designed with their needs specifically in mind by someone that's going to take the worry out of money for them, they'll generally lead a happier, healthier, more prosperous life. They'll have a more balanced life, won't they? They'll be able to, you know, relax and have peace of mind and be able to focus on the important things like family and connection. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for your time today and your insight. It's been our pleasure to have you join us today. Thanks, Janine. Pleasure. Hope you enjoyed the show today and have some action steps you can take right now to get control of your money. Join me, Janine Wilson, next time for Finesse Your Money. Meantime, head to my website, www.finesseadvisors.com or email me at admin at finesseadvisors.com to claim a gift voucher for a discovery session with me valued at $150. Make sure you put gift voucher in the headline.